B2C, you have all this product information at your fingertips. You have all this customer feedback at your fingertips. You don't have to interact with people to interact with a brand. And so that's transcending into B2B. And so when we really think about like the age of the self-serve buyer and why we decided to title the report and what you're also still seeing is that there's a big disconnect between this reality of how buyers want to interact with brands and especially technology brands and the way go-to-market teams are actually interfacing with them and engaging with them. Hi, and welcome back to SaaS Half Full, the only show serving B2B SaaS marketers. I'm Lindsay Groper, president at Blast Media, and I will be your host and bartender today. Here I am with my high noon. I'm joined today by Allison Havener. She's the VP of marketing at Trust Radius. I'm sure some of you have consulted Trust Radius when making technology purchasing decisions. And Allison is joining me today to talk through their 2022 B2B buying report. It's an annual report that they put out. It has some really interesting trends uh, and realities, which was the focus of our conversation today. There are two big realities that if you are not doing these things or changing your behaviors about these two things, you really should be because it's happening. It's not just trending. Uh, so grab a drink if you'd like to and join me as I speak with Allison from Trust Radius. Hey, Allison, welcome to SAS Half Full. We are excited to have you understand that you've been traveling a lot You've been bouncing back and forth between Trust Radius HQ and home, and you quite frankly didn't know where you're going to be during this interview. So you opted to not get a cocktail kit. But even though I'm drinking alone, I do it quite frequently. I am drinking a high noon, which is one of my favorites on the weekend. But we are well, at least Eastern time, into a very respectable hour here on a Wednesday. So all good. I was excited to have Allison on the show. As you all know, typically we don't dive into the company that the person is with on this show. It's usually something outside of that has to do with tips and tricks or best practices for SaaS marketers. However, the thing that Trust Radius does that we're talking about applies to all of you. And when I went and looked at this report we're going to talk about, there was a lot of really interesting statistics that stood out to me. And I hope that, that will be the same for you. So what we're going to cover today with Allison is their 2022 B2B buying disconnect report. Um, but before we dive into some of the key takeaways, um, want to first, Allison, give our listeners just an understanding of who you are as a human being, how you got into this role of VP of marketing at Trust Radius. Do you have history in software? Is this something that you fell into? Um, but how did you get into the world of B2B software? Well, probably like most people, I fell into it. I also fell into marketing all at the same time. So my career started at a company called LiveRamp, which is a big data management company based in San Francisco. I started there in 2013. I was hired as kind of a catch-all at an early startup that had 40 people at it, and most of them were engineers. And so... Once we started to see that growth happening, we really decided that we needed to focus in on marketing. We needed to really start focusing in on who do we want to go after? What's a company that we want to be in in five to 10 years? And so I started in marketing and I really started focusing in field and growed my expertise from there. Um, 
And I really specialize in integrated marketing. So full funnel, thinking everything from PR, corporate, that demand gen creation, if you will, and then all the way down to what we classically think of demand gen from a capture standpoint. So integrated marketing kind of covers all of that. And then I was there for eight years and then decided to look for something. And I think always in your career, you're either building or maintaining. And I was ready to go build something again. And I went to Trust Radius. The CEO, Vinay Bagot, brought me in to rebuild kind of the entire marketing department. So that's where I've been almost for the last two years. So it's been a great ride and love marketing, love all things and technology. And Trust Radius is a great place to be for that, thinking through all the technology companies that we work with and helping them really capture the customer voice. And we do have a lot of builders on this call as well who can't quite get away from jumping back into building something and starting something from the ground up. I would assume that most of you listening today know who Trust Radius is, but in the event there are a few that do not, give us the quick overview of what Trust Radius is and why y'all exist. So we're a technology buying decisioning platform. So buyers come to our site, they're looking for all this product information, they're researching different products, they're collaborating with the buying committee, essentially making a technology purchase. I think that when we're talking about this report where we sit, it's like in this middle ground of technology providers and buyers, and we are working to really serve the buyer and then make that connection with the technology vendors and really helping them assess what's going to be the best technology that fits their business schools. So let's dive into this 2022 report. The sample size is legit and it matters. You surveyed over 2,100 different technology buyers to get the data for this report. And there are many marketers listening who either are thinking about how do I release my first data report and do it successfully? And also those who do release reports and sample size does matter. There were some stats that made me go, wow, that's a big jump from years past. So there were a couple of stats that we'll talk about that is like, okay, yeah, we knew this was coming. We'd heard about it, but like, wow, it really leapfrogged and it's here. So any of the sort of those, let me sit back in my chair stats are always good to have. And you guys did a great job of pulling out the stats that were most impactful as opposed to just the stats that worked well for Trust Radius. When I looked at the report, I'm like, I'm sure, yes, I know people go to review sites. Please don't let this be all about how you should go to review sites and be on review sites. And it wasn't, so that was very refreshing. It wasn't all about you, which is awesome. But this 2022 data, what you pulled out of it and what you titled this one specifically was 2022 was the year of the self-serve buyer. Now, this is a term that we've heard for several years. So what was it about the data or the stats from 2022 specifically that made it deserving of this title? Yeah. So I think in the age of the self-serve buyer, it's not necessarily a trend. It's actually a reality. And when you look at some of the stats that we've seen over years, so this is going to be our seventh year that we've done the report. And I think any, you know, you mentioned marketers trying to think about how they produce their own report. I do think there's there's something about staying with it and doing it year over year and you see trends, right? And so to your point, we've seen this trend year over year where more and more millennials and Gen Z are coming into the buying committee. They're coming into places of leadership and they are digital natives and they 
also have been growing up in the way that the same that's happening in the consumer world, right? B2C, you have all this product information at your fingertips. You have all this customer feedback at your fingertips. You don't have to interact with people to interact with a brand. And so that's transcending into B2B. And so when we really think about like the age of the self-serve buyer and why we decided to title the report that is because that's the reality. These are no longer trends because honestly, over time, They've only been trending up. There hasn't really been any gaps. And so I think it's now, this is the reality. And what you're also still seeing is that there's a big disconnect between this reality of how buyers want to interact with brands and especially technology brands and the way go-to-market teams are actually interfacing with them and engaging with them. What were some of the stats that really stood out to you when you said it was trending and now it's a reality. What were some of those data points? I think just for the self-serve buyer, before there was like, it was like in the 80% range that people wanted to self-service and it was 100%, right? So when we have a big sample size and you get 100%, like that's jarring as well. And I think that's when you can hang your hat on, okay, this is the reality. I think the other pieces of it were the types of content that they wanted. So I think pricing and pricing is a very opaque piece of information in the technology space. Pricing is very complicated sometimes, especially when you're getting into enterprise software and over 80% of buyers want to see pricing up front. And I think that is a huge change in the way marketers are talking and presenting their product and the understanding of the value exchange, right? So when you're talking to people and when you're thinking about your marketing messaging and you have your pricing up front, there has to be essentially this idea of that value exchange. Okay, here's our pricing, but then here's the value that you get from it. Here's our customers validating that value. And then it also changes the sales teams, right? They're no longer like this gatekeeper of pricing, right? And it's not three stages into the sales cycle that they're seeing pricing. It's actually can be up front. And I think there's a lot of benefits to that. It's really scary for people because it's not something that that they have been very transparent about. So that was interesting. And then to couple that, people are using many different sources. I think obviously like a trust radius is an example of that, but they're using a lot of word of mouth. They're really trusting their peers. They're more skeptical than ever because markets are so saturated with different technology, but then all messaging starts sounding the same. And so it's hard for buyers to differentiate between products. So I think the other stat that was really interesting is the types of content that they're using to do their research in the forums that they're doing their research in. And salespeople have fallen out of the top five and vendor provided resources also fell out of the top five. I think that's also very jarring because you're you're, as a marketer or as a salesperson, you feel as though like, hey, great, buyers are coming to me. I'm going to be this trusted resource. And that's not how they see it because they're so skeptical. And the same thing with marketing. It's like, great, I made this beautiful website and everyone's going to come and they're just going to believe everything, convert, et cetera. And that's also just not the case. So I think those are some things that as a marketer or just overall go to market team to keep in mind. Yeah, the pricing one is really interesting. I recently was internally part of a buying committee for new software at our agency. And so I experienced this where based on your survey, it was by far the number one thing when it comes to self-serve that buyers want is transparent pricing. I want to be able to find it. I want it to be on your website, but I experienced this where that is not common. I actually ended up choosing a vendor because 
everything I wanted. I found myself and there was a free trial. As soon as I saw the pricing, I said, you could try it and then go up to this price. I said, awesome. Never had to have any interaction. Like I'm living this despite though this, there are so many companies who hide their pricing and your prospects are going to find out your pricing, whether it's from you or somebody else. And there's also a lot of misinformation out there when you, cause you do a little Google search, right? Cause then we'll Google, we can't find it. How much does ABC cost? Then you're getting some source that isn't even true or accurate, but that's what I'm basing it on. So why the obvious is that from, for like competitive reasons, we don't list pricing, but don't we all know how much our each other's solutions cost? Why, why are companies continuing to hide their pricing? What's your take on that? Like I said, I think it's a completely different motion and most pricing can be complicated. And then from a buying perspective, when you're getting into the buying cycle, nothing stops a deal faster when you see really complicated pricing and it's not quite maybe what you were expecting. And then all of a sudden you see in your conversion rates, there's a big drop after like your proposal stage or whatever you may call it. But as soon as they see pricing in the sales cycle, and then you see that big drop off, right? Okay. Great. Let's understand the pain points. Then let's sell them on the solution so they understand the value. So then when they see pricing, buyers will be like, okay, great. I see that value exchange. And what buyers want is that pricing up front because essentially to your point, you want to know if that's in your price range. You want to understand like if it's even worth the hassle of continuing that research. And I think people, they see that as a hindrance in getting them actually into the sales cycle. But to your point and your living proof of this and what we get from our research is that it actually, one, you'll get on the shortlist of the buyers because you're being transparent and you're starting to build brand trust. Think how valuable that is. Like you actually trust a brand more if they're like, oh, I'm going to put my pricing up front. I'm more willing to work with them. And just accelerating the deal cycle because you already know the pricing. So all you go through when you enter the deal cycle with the salesperson, they can be more consultative. They can think more about, okay, what are the other features and use cases that we can solve for you? And then when you get to that proposal, there's not a lot of anything to hide. So I think it actually benefits, but it just, it's changing an entire process and it's cross-functional, right? So I'm in marketing and I could go ahead and put pricing on our website, but I had to go through our sales team, our CS team, our whole field team to get sign off because we want to be aligned. You can't be showing pricing and then the sales team isn't aware of that and that they haven't changed their process for that. So there's, so I think the other big kind of hindrance of divulging pricing is the cross-functionality of it. And you really need to have alignment across your entire go-to-market team. And the other interesting point that I saw was, and you mentioned this earlier, that the number one cited reason that people will drop off, prospects will drop off, is if they get a cold call from a vendor. So you combine that with hiding pricing and still doing cold calls. It's like the double whammy for the sales rep because they don't even want the call to begin with, but you finally get someone who takes your call and then they're sticker shot because they didn't know the pricing up front. So why it's like... <laughs> Why, listeners, why are we doing these two things and killing our sales reps? That is not the best use of their time. And by having the pricing on there, you're at least taking that part out of the equation and, and creating an SQL where they at least have budget because they know 
going in. And, you know, pricing discussion could be a whole other episode, but understand that there are complicated pricing. But I've even been in a situation where even if I am served up a huge range, could be $10,000 to $100,000 investment. I at least know, okay, so like my 20 grand, I at least know that can work in there somewhere where if I had two, okay, but you don't want to talk to me anyway. So I, it just, it's something to think about for sure, because the sales rep role, we're going to dive into that in a little bit. I'm nervous for those guys and girls. I'm nervous for those sales reps because their jobs are changing so much and what their value that they bring, it just, we need to shift our mindset there for sure. You mentioned our buyers now, millennials. Gen Z, those are making up most of the buyer personas now. These are the ones that, that you're talking to and who oftentimes do have that budget approval. Are you seeing specific generational differences between millennials and Gen Z, or are you seeing that the sort of those the buying trends are staying are pretty similar between those two groups? Yeah, they're definitely similar between those two groups because again, it's that kind of digitally native person that's so used to interacting with people on social media. They're really, they grow up with Amazon, right? And we're, I think actually it's not even the relationship between Gen Z and millennials. I actually think it's more about that, that it's transcending to older generations as well. So in the report, 65% of the buyers identified as millennial and Gen Z. However, when you look at the trends, we still had people from other generations that are still wanting the same thing, right? That still 100% wanted to self-serve, 80% wanted to see pricing up front. So when you look at that, you will see that it, it's not really generational anymore in terms of what these expectations are. And again, I think that's more due to like just the environment that we all live in. I hate to bring up the pandemic because I'm like so over talking about it. And I think everybody is, but like we all had to go digital, right? And then one whole channel of the marketing team was gone. And so you started interacting with everyone digitally. And so I think it's like, there's the environment around us and then there's generational, but it's now across all generations that they want all this information. They want transparency. I think- when I look at the market and as a marketer, you're constantly trying to differentiate yourself. And what's one way that you can really differentiate yourself? And I think it's around this brand and this brand trust. And I think that this is a lever that you can pull where it's like, let's give them all this information that they want, pricing, demos, free trials. Like you said, that's an amazing buyer experience. You went there, you saw the pricing, you saw a free trial. That makes it really frictionless for you to just really understand a product, get that hands-on experience. And then you couple that with your customer voice and those social and that, those proof points that, that you're getting from your customer base. That's really helpful because then you can see, hey, this person that works at the same size company as me has the same or similar title as me. Oh, they found a lot of success. Great. I want to dive into the sales rep discussion here. So the annual surveys, you've been doing this, you said for seven years, for the last five years, vendor sales reps were in the top five of most commonly used resources. So in my buying process, in that top five things that I, as a prospect, I interacted with to help me purchase, vendor interacting with vendor sales reps was in that top five. However, this year they dropped from the top five completely. So that's meaning that as a prospect who likes to self-serve for the first time, they're not one of my top five things that I interacted with to even get the deal done. And this is definitely something to note. They were replaced by communities and forums, which I also avid user of communities and forums in asking for, has anyone used this? Has anyone heard of, et cetera. 
But what does this say to you about the future of sales jobs and how SaaS companies may need to pivot or change their mindset about their sales reps? So this is a really important concept that I think we've seen, again, like why it's important to do research over time and you can start to see this trend happening. But then you couple that with the stat that you mentioned earlier, that cold calling or cold outreach just in general is the number one thing to make a brand less likely to buy from you. So that's a deterrent, right? And nobody wants to be sold to. It's not fun to be sold to. All you care about is my problem and a solution to the problem. And as a marketer, everybody's dodging calls all day, dodging emails all day. So I think that if you think about the sales role in that perspective, and you think about your end customer, your end buyer, and what they really want, they're going to want a consultative salesperson. They want someone that really understands their problem and their use case. And they don't have to be experts, but they have to be able to connect the dots, right? I always like talk to my sales team. I'm like, great, here are these key phrases that you're going to hear from our target buyer. This is what they need. This is what they're talking about. And this is how you connect it to a use case. Okay, great. And then this is how you connect it to a trust radius solution. So I think about it's much more of this consultative versus like trying to shove a product down someone's throat, right? Like the, <laughs> there's like two different approaches there. I also think, again, the gatekeeper. So salespeople can no longer be the gatekeeper of important product information. You have to make that readily available. And you have to also realize from a sales perspective, they might know all of this information by time you get into the sales conversation. And so they have to be able to be, again, that consultative and then accelerate. Take that as an advantage. They already know a lot about your product. Maybe they already went through a demo. Maybe they've already read through a bunch of customer reviews and understand the pros and cons of your product. If so, great, use that to your advantage and move that deal along faster and get it to that closed one or closed lost. Nobody wants to, you know, when it's a, a no. But then the other thing is, to your point earlier around pricing, if you can already sell, self-select out and, hey, look, this isn't quite right for me, you're probably not in their ICP anyways. And you're just, you're reducing a lot of that inefficiency in the sales process where you might having like five conversations with somebody, especially in an enterprise sale, right? And then you, again, you get to it and it's like, this This has just been a waste of time for both parties. And I think in a world right now where we're all having to do more with less, if you can cut out those inefficiencies, especially in the sales cycle, get to the closed loss, or maybe they don't even enter your sales cycle, they're not even in your ICP, right? So I think there's a lot of efficiencies with it as well. Yeah, and you said nobody likes to get a cold call, but like no sales rep likes to do cold calls, especially when they're not equipped with the information that they need. And so they're cold calling an unqualified prospect. Like they don't want that either. And do I feel for the reps? And I, I answer most cold emails that I get. If they followed up once, if I get two touch points, I will answer most emails. Every now and then I'll pick up my phone knowing it's a sales call. But I picked one up the other day and it's this woman, she's just doing her job. But she said, we'd like to offer your company. And I said, well, I'm involved with a couple of companies. Which one? Couldn't answer. Didn't know. And I said, how did you know that we're interested? Well, someone from your company was on our site. Well, I said, do you know who it was? Someone in leadership. I'm like, that's either myself or my partner. This poor sales rep was given my name and a phone number with 
zero other data points. Right. And I'm like, how does this happen? <laughs> Couldn't even give my company name. Couldn't even come up with Blast Media. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're just doing your job. It's a no for me, but poor sales rep, right? There's no excuse for that anymore today with the technology and data that we have available. I feel like this whole shift in the buyer behavior and the preferences and meeting buyers on their terms is actually beneficial for sales. And I think it also changes this pendulum swing of marketing. So like I said, when I was kind of describing around integrated marketing, there, I always think of it as there's either demand creation or demand capture. Like everything you should be doing is laddering into those two things more or less. And so where the pendulum has swung in marketing is capture demand. So cold calling, all that, like people are not thinking about this 24 seven, right? And so people are like, how do I capture this demand? But they haven't even created it in the first place. Most people don't even know they have this, whatever problem your product solves for, or they have never even interacted with your brand. I think there's fringe cases and these fringe cases that get into like, you know, you're at your field kickoff and so-and-so reached out and they got Lindsay on a call and it's like, well, that was like one time. Okay, like how do you scale? And so I think from a marketing point of view and what I've seen and what I'm also implementing in my team, which I think is really important, is you have to focus on the demand creation. And that's at top of funnel. That's getting people just to engage with your brand, getting them to read your thought leadership content. I also think it's these macro trends. This report's huge for us, right? There's all these macro trends that are happening in the market. How do we tie ourselves into it? How do we actually deliver some value to the market, value to someone's inbox? And then when they're thinking about, oh, hey, where can I get this solution? Hopefully, right, then there's the mechanism for the demand gen capture. And I think that'll help a lot of the sales team, right? When marketing has that, because they're not doing that cold calling, they actually have a mechanism where it's, okay, we have all these amazing people that are interacting with our brand. They're actually seeing value, whatever it may be. I think that's why PLG, like product-led growth has become such a phenomenon because people are interacting with your brand. They're easier to convert, right? There's a lot of nuances to it, but it's that concept. And so you can't over-index on the demand and capture and buyers don't like that. And you're just seeing it. And it's only going to be more, right? When we do this research this year, we're really starting to think about buyers and the influence that each of these sources has in their actual purchase decision, which I think is really important because I think when you're building your marketing strategy or go to market, everything has a different level of influence and marketers should be really thinking about, okay, what are the most influential things for buyers and how do I lean into that? And I think that's really important. So this research that we do is really trying to help bridge the gap. And that's why we call it the B2B buying disconnect is because we want to bridge the gap between the way buyers want to buy and the way go-to-market teams sell. Yeah, absolutely. And this was what we talked about was the 2022 data. You're currently yes. gathering and working on the report for 2023. When will that come out? And without obviously giving us a spoiler. Can you tease any key themes you mentioned? Marketing's influenced by the strategy. Any other key themes that you can tease for us? Yeah. So the report's going to be coming out at the beginning of June. 
And some of the key themes that we see, like I said, what's really influencing the buying decision. And the other big piece of this is also just how people are thinking about their tech stocks. So I think when you have the current economic conditions, everybody's seeing this constricting nature. You're seeing kind of consolidation in the tech sphere. Um, But how are buyers thinking about their tech stocks? There's been the idea of you buy one solution and that that's your entire tech stack and it's everything's bolted onto that. Or you're thinking best in class and hopefully all of that has really great integration so all your systems can talk to each other. So we're really thinking kind of those two things is one is what goes into that purchase decision, but then also how are people thinking about their tech stack? But not just their tech stack, but also in the same vein as like their entire success. So what, like, how are they weighing like technology versus headcount? How are they thinking about that, the utilization of it? I think a lot of people right now in the buying cycle is you have to have ROI story because people are, again, they're skeptical. If they don't know what they're going to get out of it up front, then it's really hard for them to make that case internally. The ones that will survive is the ones that can prove ROI. They show that they're a must-have. If I'm in the buying committee and we're seeing a lot now is that the CFO is coming into the decision Maybe he's not making the decision, but you have to get a sign off. And so you have to have that business case. And so I think with this report, we're just really trying to understand like those dynamics, again, to help technology providers prepare for the future. Obviously, it's coming to a head now, but also thinking about the future of their go-to-market strategies. Awesome. This has been really interesting. I like how you started this with like, (laughs) we all have heard these things. We know these things are like, no, but really it's here. (laughs) It's happening. The data showing it. Thank you. (laughs) This is happening. It's now. I know that we were not able to send you a cocktail kit, but I do ask all of my guests before we head out, if you have a favorite or signature toast that you can send us out with. Oh, wow. A signature toast. I'm pretty, I always like to say it in a different language. So wherever like I am, I like to say like food or broth or (laughs) like love that, you know, cheers in so many languages. We will say cheers in many languages today. Yeah. And I also love high noon. So I am a huge fan of high noons. I wish I had one. I might have one when it's appropriate on the Pacific time. Thanks again to Allison for joining me on SaaS Half Full. Okay, people, cold calling, transparent pricing. What are we going to do? We're going to put our pricing on our website if we can, and we are going to help our reps not be so cold in their cold calling. We're going to warm them up. We're going to have them already pre-sold before they get on there. Uh, Really appreciate the conversation. Appreciate Allison's time. Um, Until next time, bottoms up. For those of you that have made it all the way to the end of this episode, thank you. We appreciate it. I'm asking the one question in our one more drink segment, which is what do you wish more CEOs understood about marketing? Here is Allison's answer. I wish that they understood more of the demand creation piece and the brand piece. I think they understand numbers. And so when something doesn't have a number that then ties to bottom line, it usually gets cut. And so I wish that CEOs understood the value of this kind of demand creation and brand and what that can really, and how powerful that can be when you're thinking about your long-term strategy.